Hey, Tara. Hey, Johnny. Oh, I know. Wow. Yeah. Is that your election voice? It is my. It's my <laughs> stern teacher voice because everybody should be. Lo- oh, oh, oh! I just had a stroke. It's- <laughs> Even <laughs> if you had a stroke, <laughs> you should wheel yourself to your local poll and vote today. It doesn't matter. Nothing should stop you from voting it's today. Finally, fucking here. Super Tuesday, California primary. Bring it. I, I am ready to put the sucker behind me. I want this resolved today. Um, and it probably won't be, but I no, would love it for it to be. No, but I I think this this needs to be. I think everybody needs to uh, exercise their voting muscle today. Absolutely. And it's a privilege to vote. It is a privilege, but I, I think that there are people that go, oh, it's just the primaries, it doesn't matter. Oh, but it does. It really does. So, And um, I'm super excited about our guest today. So am I. I mean, I think um, I know him personally, so I know he's going to have a, a lot of great stories about, well, the Golden Girls, which he was a writer on, which is a huge hit still today. Mm-hmm. How many? 30 years later. Um and he's got a new show called Why Women Kill. Wait, you're also, you're dismissing Desperate Housewives I was, and I Devious w- Maids. I no, was, you went from here to now, and I can't do that. I need linear. <sighs> yes, Desperate Housewives and Devious Maids. Um, he's just a prolific, wonderful writer. Yeah, I mean, super funny and uh, incredibly smart. So I can't wait to get him in the caucus here and have a discussion about politics. That's him. I know. Get him in the caucus. Yeah, get him in the caucus. Get him in the caucus. You know, knowing Mark, he'd be into it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm very excited about this interview. So let's stop talking to each other uh, and get him in here. All right. When we come back, the one and only Mark Cherry. Hey, Tara. Hey, Johnny. We're back, baby. <laughs> Yes, we are. I am so excited to have our guest here today. I am too. He is a wonderful man, and he is funny as fuck, and uh, I adore him. Please welcome the legend, Mark Cherry. Hey-o! Hey-o! Um, what? Wow. <laughs> I'm just, I'm dying. You're speechless? Really, I am speechless. Mark, I just got into your new show. Oh, Why Women Kill yes. on CBS All Access. So this morning before coming over, we had just gotten All Access, and I... We did the deep dive on the um, the pilot, and I fucking love it. I'm thank you very much. I am so proud of it. This is my first streaming show. They're giving me more time and more money to do less episodes, and I am just like a and, pig, pig in shit. And letting you say fuck and three ways yeah. and all kinds of I, delicious things. I have to to admit, I after going through the first season, I kind of like went back over it. And I went. You know what? I use the word fuck too much. Mm -hmm. I was like a kid in a candy store. And I really chafed against standards and practices at ABC. They were incredibly um, difficult. And they would be upset at the most ridiculous things. And it was because Disney was the parent corporation. Mm -hmm. And so they were stricter than other places. And so, yes, I was like a teenager rebelling against his parents. So it was like we got got a little nudity in there and – and I was just having some fun. So I, I part of me is like, no, as a writer, like I'll use I'll use the f bomb, but I need to be a little bit more restrained so that when I use it, it's it's more important, you know. Yeah, I just thought it was just very sexy the show. You know what? Yeah, I, I you know what I have done. I've always dealt with you know women's personal lives and you know kind of taking soap opera tropes and spinning them with my sense of humor. 
And so um, I came up with the concept of this show and CBS All Access let me go to town with it. So, you know, the first season of Desperate Housewives, our second episode, we had a scene where Gabrielle is, uh, you know, having a tryst with John the gardener and Carlos comes home unexpectedly and they see him walking up the driveway and then she basically... He's naked and he's just putting on his shirt. She throws him out the window and hides his clothes. And so he appears at the window and the joke of the the button of the scene was he says, hello, Mr. Solis. And he's got his gardening shears and it looks like he's pruning a bush. And then we cut outside. And because of standards and practices, we couldn't even show like a millimeter of his butt. It had Damn. to cover everything. And this is the kind of thing where I go, if you could have just let me show some of the butt, it just would have been a funnier joke. I wasn't being purient. I just wanted the joke. And that's the wonderful thing about um, having no standards and practices, which they actually gave me two rules, which I'll tell you. And I don't know that if I don't know if this applies on Picard, but on my show, we only have two rules. Um, can't say the word cunt, and we can't show frontal genitalia of either sex. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't planning on doing either of those things anyway, so <laughs> fine. Um, you say cunt when you leave, when you get home. <laughs> exactly. Actually, I can think of a few you might have said here's, it about. <laughs> here's, I'll say something about that word, and I know, know it's very offensive to a whole lot of people. I went through my whole life never using the word, but then I started hanging out with B. Arthur. Oh, and B. Arthur used it constantly. <laughs> and I love that. It was it was interesting to me because one time I was talking with you know, it was B and, and a couple of friends, and we were at a, a restaurant and we were talking about the David Koresh thing that had just happened in Waco. And I said something about something, something, and I was gonna try to say cult, and I said cunt. <laughs> and I went and B just thought that was the funniest thing, and I was mortified because that was not the word that I meant to come out. And I was like, okay, I've been hanging out with you way too much oh lately. Oh, my God. It's one of my favorite words. It's Well, you know, part of it is I feel about uh, what I know about where our swear words come. They're um, derived from, I think, um, the the Saxons, you know, in England because, you know— Fuck for the Saxons, you know, meant it was um, fornicate for the Romans, shit, defecate, spit, expectorate. And and so there are words that came from a language, but they, they were conquered by the Romans, so they became the low-class words. This is my understanding mm-hmm. of the entomology. So sometimes people get really upset about four-letter words, and I think there's something in society that makes us want to have certain words that we're not allowed to say so that then we can say them and mm-hmm. it just means more. These are the random thoughts that go through a showrunner's <laughs> Mar- mind. A Marcherry mind. <laughs> yes. Um, well, can we go back and can we talk about how you became a writer? And and you, I think, started on a little tiny show that nobody had ever heard of, correct? I started on a show called Homeroom that was about um, uh, a black man who gave up his successful job as an advertising agent to go teach in an inner city school a bunch of fourth graders. So as a white guy from Orange County, I was perfect to capture the voice of (laughs) Um, And that lasted 10 episodes. But while I was writing it, uh, my script found its way, and it was not just my script. I should, should point out I had a writing partner back then, Jamie Wooten, talented guy. And our script landed um, over at with Thomas Harris, and they 
um, hired us off of that. So I did about 10 episodes of this little show no one had heard of. And my second job, you know, six months into show business, I was on The Golden Girls. And um, it was like getting a master's class in comedy, producing, writing, you know, all of it. And I... You know, I, I couldn't couldn't have been luckier, couldn't have learned more. And, and the best part was I got to know and work with and become friends with the ladies. Mm-hmm. And boy, did I love each and every one. Mm. I did my first job with Estelle. So did I, you? Yeah, she was my we, – we used to go to Torch Song. We'd go uh, to the theater at the same time because we were in the same act together. So I, I was uh, very close to So her. you did the Matthew Broderick part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how many were you down the, the line? We're like the Annies. We're the gay Annies, right? <laughs> yes, like, exactly. Like a fa- I, I was so far down the line that it didn't give me any career boost. <laughs> Toward the end. I was on Estelle's last tour, actually, when, right before she started doing Golden yeah. Girls. So she, she was the first one cast in the Golden yeah. Girls. Wow. Were you close to all of them? You know, I got closer to B um, more than more than any of them because B would call Jamie and I up and we would uh, go to her house and um, we would write some special material for her for little appearances she was making. And it's funny, we um, I, I went we went one time to hand her some pages of some stuff we'd done. Like she appeared at the Gaiman's Chorus. We wrote her a couple of jokes for that. You know, we would do things. One time she was doing a thing at the Hollywood Bowl, and I said, well, don't, haven't they hired a writer for that? And she said, yeah, but he's about as funny as a dead baby's toy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had never oh heard God. that expression before. <laughs> she made it up. <laughs> you know? So I was like, wow, okay, well, that's, that sounds pretty not funny, so uh, we'll help you out. <laughs> but, um, but this weird thing happened where Jamie and I were at B's house, and we've done, you know, we've handed the jokes. She likes the jokes just fine. And, and we're sitting around hanging. She said, have a drink with me. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. And I don't drink alcohol. And my writing partner knew I didn't drink alcohol. And I said, oh, no, thank you. And she said, have a drink with me. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I didn't, I was so young back then. I didn't know really how to tell B. Arthur no. Yeah. You don't. So, yeah, so, so. She pours us, I don't know if it was scotch or whiskey, she pours us these drinks, and we're across the kitchen table from her. Jamie's sitting next to me, B's on the other side. So we're just talking, and Jamie and I just start doing a thing where we put our glasses under the table, we exchange them, and Jamie drank both of our glasses of, you know, whatever he was drinking, whiskey, and poor Jamie could barely walk out of there. <laughs> Oh my so God, we this... did. So, so B had no idea that we were doing this because we just didn't want to say no to her. Right. So you know that's the power of, of B Arthur. Oh my God. The power of B. I want to do a whole podcast called the power of B Arthur. <laughs> and I loved. She left a ton of money for LGBT yeah. youth in New York. She was. You know. She. All the women were great supporters yeah. of the gay community. They. Um, well, you know, you're on, you're on Golden Girls. Right. You know who your fans are, and Estelle, of course had lived through so much of the AIDS crisis, so many so young many men our, that she yeah. knew. Um, and she, like, if if I had a gay friend come to to a taping, Estelle, more than any of them, would stop what she was doing because so many gay men wanted to go up and thank her yeah. for the, the advocacy work that she had done and her vocal support. Because, you know, in the 80s, it was still a little bit of a big deal for someone to talk about their gay f- fans openly. And Estelle was fearless when it came to that. Um, and it was interesting. You know, I didn't even know that we had done this, but 
you know, Jamie and I, they had a uh, Blanche's brother, Monty Markham. I remember that um, episode. Was gay. And Jamie and I were the ones who came up with the idea of, hey, let's do, let's bring the character back and we'll have him getting married. And so kind of in the history of television, um, they, I think on the TV show Rock, they showed a gay wedding, but we were the first episode to to talk about it, mm-hmm. I believe. And what's funny is that got me my first death threat ever. Wow! So we had we had letters delivered to it, and I and it made me really appreciate the people like Estelle and Elizabeth Taylor and all those people who were speaking out. because yeah. I was just a nobody writer, and really seeing you know. Um, die Jewish faggot producers on an envelope was oh, kind of my God. eye-opening. Um, also, I'm like a Southern Baptist, so you got that wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, no one ever said those people were smart. Um, uh. But uh, but yeah, so, you know, being a part of that show was, was such an honor because to work with those women. And now, years later, I... I don't know if it's just me, but I think the show's more popular oh, it's now. Like, it's, it's iconic. It is. It is a hundred percent an icon. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is crazy for me. And there's so much merchandise. Like every friend I have, like at Christmas or my birthday, they give me Golden Girls stuff. Sure. So like when I walked away from the show, I had my little, um, you know, uh, writer's jacket with the Golden Girls on it, which I was so proud to have. I've gotten way more Golden Girls mm-hmm. swag in the last ten years. Yeah. It's just crazy. When we come back, we talk about how Desperate Housewives was born out of the worst of circumstances. I was on the Golden Girls by the time I was 27. And I didn't know what life had in store for me. And when my writing partnership broke up, we had a bad breakup. We were on a show that just was not working and then everything kind of exploded. Well, that was 1996. For eight years, my career was very spotty. I got a couple of scripts here and there. And in the middle of this desert time, I found out my agent of 14 years was embezzling from me. And suddenly I was broke. And I had to borrow money from my mom to stay afloat. And I had worked for seven straight years and and made some money. But when my writing partnership broke up, I, I decided to buy a house. You know, some women would go buy a dress to cheer them up. I decided to buy a house so we can all, you know, discuss the wisdom of Mark Cherry later. But suddenly I had no money and I didn't realize this agent was embezzling from me. And it was during that time that I was so screwed and sitcoms were kind of dying at the, they the, were. the was end a, of the 90s. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I thought, well, I got to get out of the sitcom writing business. So I got this idea uh, about housewives in suburbia. And I wrote the script and I kept telling my mom, I think I'm onto something here. I think it's the best thing I've ever written. So just be patient with me. And she said, Mark, don't worry about the money. Um, this is what family is for. So over a period of three years, I struggled with the script. Uh, I finished it. I knew it was terrific. And then no one bought it for a year and a half. I peddled that thing. No one bought it. I was turned down. The pit people turned down the pitch. And I went ahead and wrote the script, and then they turned down the, the script. And the luckiest day of my life was when my agent was arrested for the embezzlement. Another client turned her in, and I, and I joined the suit once I understood that she had stolen from me too. And then I ended up at Paradigm. And Paradigm, uh, my agency that I am still with to this day, figured out how to sell the script. But over that three-year period, I had borrowed $100,000 from my mother. And as luck would have it, 
Desperate Housewives got purchased by ABC for a hundred thousand oh, dollars. And I went to my mother with the check and I showed up and I was feeling a little cocky, you know. Look at me, I'm gonna pay it all off. <laughs> and I handed the check to my mother and I said, Aren't you lucky that you had a son who could figure his way out of trouble? And my lovely mother took that check, looked me straight in the eye and said, I'm not lucky. I knew what horse I was betting on. Mm. <sighs> wow. And I get oh so God. emotional when it's I tell that story. Emotional. And I like to also follow up with, uh, after our syndication uh, package came in for Desperate Housewives, I bought my mom a house. Mm. Wow. So that was an investment that paid You're off. You're a good boy. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to switch it up a little bit. We're gonna switch talk, it up. We're going to talk politics for a second. All right, let's see if I can say anything intelligent. So, I no, you oh, can. please. Um, now let me ask you a question. You, uh, you have, you were self-declared, uh, somewhat conservative gay Republican. Yeah. How's that work? Well, first of all, let me just say, you know, I'm, I was born in, um, I was born in Long Beach, but raised primarily in Orange County, California. So they register you as a Republican at birth. At birth I was going to say at birth. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was never surprising, like the word Republican, like just everyone's parents were re- Republican in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Not it, mine. It, it was, two, yeah, yeah it, it, it was, you didn't think twice about it. Um, and, and of course I was growing up in the, the late sixties, early seventies. So also, you know, we were all scared of the hippies, you know, what can I say? And when I came to Hollywood and then was in my first room where I think like five or six of the writers were Jewish New Yorkers Mm -hmm. who all saw their therapists on weekends, which seemed very extravagant to me (laughs) at the time. Um, I, I, people would ask me and I would say, well, I'm a Republican and people would react. They would have opinions. And I think I, I continued to declare my Republicanism, even though I'm really just middle of the road, I would declare it just to be contrary because I was like, don't bully me into thinking something or whatever. And I always said, I'm a Republican in Hollywood, but boy, if you put me down in the middle of Virginia, I'd, I'd be liberal. Right. And it's, it's, I'm situationally dependent upon how people perceive, you know, my middle of the road views. So, you know, um, the way that this got revealed, because I don't really talk politics, mm-hmm. but um, we uh, got the cover of Newsweek, the first season of Desperate Housewives. And so they sent out this reporter to, to interview me. And I'm on the set of, of um, I think it was Bree's Kitchen or something. And the reporter's talking to me, and he he started talking about um, – he mentioned to me – and he was clearly gay. And he said to me, look, I'm going to say this as a gay man. You know, you've talked about, like, working at Disneyland in parades when you were 21. And I'm going <laughs> I'm going to take a wild guess here and say – and he said, this is off the record. He goes, um, I'm assuming you're a gay. And I was like, yeah. And then I said to him – but, like, I suddenly was like, oh, wait, I just told a reporter from Newsweek I'm gay – and I don't want to hide that fact because I'm not ashamed of it. But on the same token, my relatives are going to read this. And I did the weirdest thing. I went, but I'm also a Republican. <laughs> because I thought, OK, that'll make me then I'm not like just some stereotypical writer. I don't know what was really going through my head, but I just was very important for me to say to my relatives, my unseen relatives spread across Oklahoma and Arkansas, like, Okay, I'm I'm coming out as a, a gay man, but I'm also Republican, I'm re- so, so you can still love me. So yeah, so that was the weird thing going on through my head. Don't don't even ask why. So the weird thing is, this is where it gets stupid. 
So uh, a couple of weeks later, we, you know, our show was so hot. We were being interviewed by everyone or whatever. Diane Sawyer comes for Good Morning America. She's doing a week-long thing on, on Desperate Housewives. So every day they're interviewing pe- the women, and then I'm, I have my own segment with Diane Sawyer. So I'm sitting in, on the, the Wisteria Lane. She's interviewing me. And we're talking about things, and all of a sudden, so look, I read the, I read about you, um, and you you admitted to something, and I thought, crap, she's going to talk about being gay. Fuck, I'm now going to have to talk about being gay on TV, and my mom's going to see this, and my mom knows I'm gay, but boy, she doesn't really like me talking about the gay thing, and I'm just, and I'm freaking out. How am I going to do this? Whatever. And she goes, and um, I was surprised to read that you are, and I just went gay, and she went, no, I was, I was going to say Republican. <laughs> And I suddenly am like, I fucking outed myself for no good reason. And I, I swear to God, I was like sitting there going, and she, I don't even remember what she said for the rest of the interview because I was like, what did I just do? Oh my God. And, and you know, it's there on tape. You can actually go back and see, see this, this moment. And I don't know if they captured the, just the idiocy in my eyes. But where that really, like the next thing that happened, and this was really odd, was that one of my friends called on a Sunday morning and said, hey, um, they just talked about you on Meet the Press. And I went, what? And, and my TV happened to be on Channel 4 and my, you know, it was, it was recording. It was, yeah. it was TiVoing. And I went back and I reround it. And at some point they were talking about the 2004 election. We were getting ready to, to choose between uh, George W. Bush and John Kerry. And Tim Russert was talking about, you know, well, what is, you know, America going to, you know, choose? And he's talking to Jerry Falwell. And and Jerry Falwell says, well, we're a center-right country. And Tim Russert goes, well, are you sure? The number one show in America is Desperate Housewives. And then he says, by the way, you know, the creator of that, he's a gay man, but he's he's a Republican. And Jerry Falwell said something to the effect of, well, he should get out of the Republican Party because oh, we don't God want him. Jesus. Wow. And that was my first time going, huh, maybe I need to start reappraising yeah. my choices here. And I always used to say to, to you know, um, the other gay Republicans I would meet in show business, we all would meet at a booth at Denny's. And I would say to them, you know, it's weird because there are certain things that I, I, I won't follow the crowd on. I have beliefs that I, I care deeply about. And I actually think we need gay people in the Republican Party because what good does it do if we're all in the Democratic Party? Because the Democratic Party will take us for granted. So we should be able to to we should be in in both and then thereby having some influence. But, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they would just say, well, the Republicans Party is so evil. Like, you know, you just can't. And I would go, it's not evil. There's just different ways of looking things. Well, that opinion of mine changed in November of 2016. Why? They, what happened in November of 2016? <laughs> oh, just everything went to hell and back. I, I, I used to really. It was not that hard for me to defend previous Republican administrations. You know, you could have interesting debates with people and right. point out certain things. But now I feel like we're living through, you know, um, Nazi Germany in the 20s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm looking at everything happening, and I no longer became about whatever my wishful thinking was or, or, you know, no, there's a different way of looking at this issue. Now it's like, no, there's just massive corruption and we're, it's, we're tiptoeing ever, ever closer to an 
authoritarian regime. And I've just found out that there's a whole very few brave Republicans in Congress. God love Mitt, Mitt Romney. Romney. Yes, absolutely. God love him. Yeah. We, and, we, yeah. And, and if there's anything that, if I may um, bloviate about this for a second, nothing up, upsets me more than someone who, like, you want to say, God, that guy's a hero. Yeah, but he did such and such in the past. And like, fuck you. Fuck you. At the moment where it was most important. That's right. He said something. He did something. It was historic. After the break, Mark spills the tea on the Sacred Hollywood Club for Republicans and why he left them and the GOP. Excellent. I used to be a part of an organization called Friends of Abe. Okay. And it was a, a elite Hollywood group that would get together and they were all Republicans. And so we would have meetings and they would have speakers and it was all very interesting and it was cool. And you would be surprised at some of the celebrities who were there. Sure. And Trump's election kind of blew that organization up. Mm. And people like me, I, I stopped going to it because I went to see um, – it's a funny story. So Trump did the whole es- coming down the escalator, talking about Mexicans being rapists speech um, either at the end of June or early July of mm-hmm. 2015. In August, he spoke at a hotel here in Los Angeles. And the Friends of Abe organization had a um, – a, they hired out a ballroom and you know, you, people got invited. So I got um, set, seated at a table. And I wanted to see, well, what does he talk like in, in real life? Like, what is this thing? Because I was thinking, is there this a show it's going on or whatever? Right. Yeah. And I got to tell you, um, it, it was worse than, than what he says on TV. Wow. It was a little bit worse. And the thing that made it worse, I was seated to the side. So I was at, ostensibly, I was at table number one, which is what they said, and it was right next to the stage. But where I was seated, it was, I could see Trump's profile as he was speaking to the crowd. And at some point, he started talking about every culture sends out, like all these countries send their, and I forget if the word was trash or effluvium. It certainly wasn't effluvium. No, that's, that's too, a big too word. Yeah. But it was something like that. Refuse. That's the word he said. The refuse. He said, every country sends us their refuse. And at that exact moment, a waiter who was bringing out desserts came out and he turned the corner and he was literally right in front of Trump, as, as Trump used this word. And I gasped because this, um, he looked to be Latino. This man wasn't listening to Trump's speech. He had a big tray of desserts. But he just came out and he was doing his job. And I felt because of where I was seated, and I don't know if anyone else in the crowd picked this up, my friend and I who were sitting next together, we, we both are back straightened. Because I thought, God, you don't even you don't even notice that this guy's doing his job and he's working hard, and this is who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we can you, there's room to have an intelligent conversation about immigration, how much immigration are we talking? What is the proper way to have people come to our country? There's all sorts of actually intelligent ways to discuss the issue. But when you're just calling human beings refuse, Mm -hmm. and I see this guy there who represents the kind of person you think you're talking about, and I say, I mean, he's just trying to do his job. That was the thing that just made me sick. And I, I never went back to another meeting because, and the part two of this thing is because when he was finished with that speech, Three quarters of the room cheered him. Wow. And these are people who work in Hollywood. Mm. And I just I just had a different feeling. 
And I don't. I, and one of the things I say to my friends, they ask me if I'm a Democrat now. I said, well, I'm certainly going to vote for for the Democratic candidate, whoever that may be. I probably am more officially. I don't think I've re-registered yet, but I'm I'm more of a um, an independent because right. I do believe we need two sane political parties in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I you know I don't I you know I people who don't understand that on either side are I think are foolish. But boy, I I cannot in good conscience support this wannabe dictator, you know, thing that's going on in our country. And uh, and that's kind of where it all changed for me. I hope there are millions of you out there. I really do. I I feel the exact same way because we need... Yeah. And in a strange way, I'm such a, a Democrat, but in the past year and a half, I've grown a level of uh, fraternal feelings for ex-Republicans because I feel like, yeah, we I, I accept like your differences with me, but we're all on the same page on this. Yeah. This is beyond anything we've ever seen before. Well, and and the and the thing is, we've never had a, a a president so vicious that he will come out against people, and then suddenly Fox News comes out against them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do about that. I have no good ideas because the First Amendment allows people to say whatever they want. I'm right. enjoying the First Amendment right now. But but what they're doing is propaganda and um, and something needs to be done. And right now the best we got is elections. But then, you, of course, you hear about um, – you know, the Russians are trying to influence it. And know? they are probably doing it as we speak. Yeah. yeah. And so then if Mitch McConnell won't even allow bills on the floor to protect the elections, then it becomes a bigger issue of what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I, I've said it about I was raised by two Republicans and I the first election I voted in, I voted Republican. And this is not our parents' Republican no. Party. This is what is happening right now is I go, is there no one in the Republican Party who, minus Mitt Romney, is willing to stand up and go, guys, there's something truly wrong happening right now. This is this. It's terrifying to me. And it gets worse every day. Do you think there are more people like you out there, the Republicans that are going to vote against them? But um, enough of them. (laughs) Well, that's because, you know, if I'm I'm reading my political tea leaves correctly, and I certainly don't claim to be an expert, you know, this is a battle that's going to be fought in seven states. And I find it um, amusing and depressing that people will put up a national poll um, of like the Democratic candidates who poll up against Trump. I, spare me spare me the national poll. How um, are the all these candidates doing in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, you know, Florida. It's tight. It's and and that's where we have to to be looking. And I I got to tell you, there he's a flawed man to be sure. But there's a part of me that I'm going, our country's on fire. Michael Bloomberg's got 23 billion buckets of water. Let him put the goddamn thing out. And I say that knowing that you know a lot of a lot of Democrats could be like, oh well, he did this in New York and he did this. I right. Went, but but does he have the power? Can he? Because I don't want. A Democratic candidate who will go to that knife fight with a fork. That's right. I want someone who can get down and dirty as that, you know, boy, I was going to say a really bad word, but, um, but uh, you know, uh, with that jerk we have in the White House. And, and I sometimes worry, and, you know, like when you write characters for a TV show, it is helpful to have people, you can't be too presidential with Trump. 
No. You've got to throw him off his game. And Hillary Clinton was too presidential. And I just think now you've got to go on someone and throw him off his game and bring up the fact, hey, was that a policy you were thinking about when you were screwing a stripper while your wife was pregnant? you got to throw stuff at him that just makes him look like the babbling idiot he is. And, and you think Bloomberg can do that on, oh, on a debate I, stage? I think Bloomberg, I think he's a street fighter. And the more important thing, Blue, Bloom, I sound like I've, I've given him money or something. I haven't. He has but, enough. <laughs> um, but I, I was thinking about it. Bloomberg is pulling great in Florida. Yeah. Trump can't win without Florida. It's just something I wish we would take seriously. You know, I feel the Democrats are starting to eat their own. Oh, yeah. And they're coming about, they're bringing up, well, you did this policy in Indiana, Mayor Pete. Well, Mayor Pete's not not gay enough, apparently. I didn't know there was a manual that you had to pass. I guess if you dance shirtless at Pride, you're gay enough. I don't know what the criterion is. After this is all said and done, we have to have a talk with some of the idiot gay guys who are against Mayor Pete. I love Mayor Pete. He's who I'm backing for the primary. I I think he's great. You know, the only question I ask as a gay man is I go. Is he electable? Is he electable? Because if the election's being fought in seven states. Right. And in the Midwest, how many thousands of votes does he lose from the people who just go, oh, he's gay? And by the way, none of them will admit right now that that's why they're not supporting him. But that is the unspoken but, but we as gay, in the room. You and I as gay men, we know how it works. Yeah, we know. I mean, that's actually the weird thing about how prejudice works is that just because you train people not to say an epitaph, mm-hmm. you know, so much of like, like you know, when people want to like come down on someone who uses the n-word mm-hmm. even if it's a professor who's talking about the history of the n-word or a writer in a writer's room yeah yeah and you go like don't we all know the difference between using it as a slur to hurt someone or then talking about the use of the word language right. and the history of it and now we've gotten to point no you must say the n-word okay fine but what upsets me about it is you can train people to say the n-word but what every i would assume what every black person knows is just because they say the N-word doesn't mean they're not thinking it. Mm-hmm. And that applies to gay people. Yeah. You know, you can have them not say faggot. But I know I know the people who I feel affection from and who feel comfortable for me. And I know the people who just have that lovely invisible wall up between mm-hmm. us. And, and I get to feel that every time I go home for Thanksgiving. No. Um, <laughs> you don't. Do you? No, okay. no, no, no. My, my family. Well, first of all, funny, funny story about my family, my Republican family, um, who are mostly from Oklahoma. The thing I learned about my family, my mother was appalled when I came out. She did not handle it well. Um, and she was and we had to go to a Christian counseling center where she said to the guy, what I'm really worried about is that Mark's going to hell. Mm. And that was a tough thing to have my mother say. But I let the counselor know, and they were going to try to do reparative therapy on me. And I was like, um, I'm making my own money from the Golden Girls. I'm fine. Thank you. Um, but I, once I became like the creator of a successful show and I was making millions of dollars and I won awards, boy, my family forgot about the gay thing real quick. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? Su- success trumps homosexuality yeah. Oh, yeah. in the Cherry family. God in, love in, them. In America. Sometimes. Well, you know what? In a little bit, yeah. yeah. And that's and that's the interesting thing. It, it, to bring it back to the Bloomberg of it all, who I'm for right now I'm fascinated by. I mean, who knows what else they're gonna dig up on him because all the all the Democratic candidates are going after him because they're starting to understand he's a real threat, so it's his time in the hopper. But you know, there are some people like we're we're trained as a society of, oh, if you're 
Rich, if you're a billionaire, you must know something that mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. And of course, how you make those billions matters. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that I'm hoping that the tax returns in New York get get unleashed, because if we find out that Trump has been cheating and double dealing and not paying loans, if we can get as much evidence as we can, it will take some of the 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 gleam off him. Mm-hmm. Mark, do you really think it'll matter though? I, Here's the thing: it doesn't have to matter to everyone. Just a few. It just has to matter to a few thousand voters in seven states. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think really that's what we're fighting for at this point is, you know, like, let's get to Michigan. Let's take Michigan away from them. We're, you know, it's it's just a, f- a few places. And that's why that's why it does matter. And when you start talking about like Bernie Sanders seems like, a, you know, an authentic, passionate, intelligent politician. Am I going to vote for a, guy, a self-declared socialist who I think Trump could slap around on any debate stage because he could just keep saying that word in possibly an incoherent way? But Trump could lie about what Bernie's doing, but he could make people believe him. Bernie scares the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Do I think if he was up against any other candidate, would I care? No, 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 not at all. But but these are the kinds of things we're we're talking about because we're not looking at the entirety of the country. Hillary Clinton won by three million votes. Didn't matter. No. Those seven states matter, and I think I think it's time for we have to get out of our old um, you know fall in love with the candidate who you just they they're doing the policies you believe in, and we must be saying who's electable in Michigan, right. who's electable in Wisconsin, who's electable in Pennsylvania. That shit matters. Coming up, little did you know with Mark Cherry. We're back. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> Next week, Mark Cherry will be the new co-host. <laughs> anyway, Mark, this is the exciting time of the show. Um, oh, cool. It's a game. Yay. Strip it, poker. Yeah. By the way, I love games. I was on $100,000 Pyramid when <gasps> I was 25 years old. Were you? Yep. Oh, I love games. I'm he, like does, a, he does a great game night every once in a while. Every once in a while. It's been know. a while for, for me, but i got to do another one. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know. I wasn't invited. Well... Maybe that'll change now. Well, maybe. I tried to invite you, but Kyle was like, no, no, <laughs> she's don't vicious. do it. She's vicious at games, apparently. Yeah, I am. I yeah, am a She'll little cut bit. a bitch. I, yeah, I don't. That's actually, that's a, the fun part about a, a game night is finding out just how competitive oh. your friends are. Oh, yeah. Do you, mean, have, right? do you have people who've gone, you've invited them, they've come, and then they go next time, uh, no, I, I, you know what, that's not for me. I've actually had people go, I, I don't think you guys are way too competitive. I had, I had, um, one one of my friends, famous actress, and she was like, yeah, I don't get invited to a game night at someone else's house because maybe the last time we were playing running charades, there might have been too much pushing. <laughs> so she had to kind of like- She go. pushed someone? And well, I what's funny it. is that- um, That's my kind of woman. <laughs> yeah. Either one of my cast members on Desperate Housewives, I, I wrote an episode where uh, she, you know, there was a game night and she was super competitive <laughs> because she I witnessed her at my own game night because it was like, you know, when that, you're playing charades with someone and they're an idiot and how to do the game. And you're like, OK, just how many words you're not you're not giving you don't touch your nose. So I don't know. And you just get frustrated because yeah. someone just is flailing and yeah. they get nervous. Yeah. And so I, I wrote a whole episode for this actress. That's so. so funny. I did a game night for for Glisten, a charity night. And uh <laughs> We had the, a casting director, I'm not going to say his name, who is a vicious game writer. Uh, we were doing a musical chairs thing, and he uh, he was left out. <laughs> he grabbed the woman at the end of the chairs and threw her on the floor. <laughs> wow. He threw her 
on the fucking floor. And I was like, oh my God, that is a I told, foul. I, no, I, I applaud that. He mode. grabbed her and threw her on the floor. Yeah. You would do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Don't invite her. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. Seriously. But uh, our game is much less dangerous. Yeah, nobody's getting pushed yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the hat is out, and Mark, the game is called Go Johnny. Lil, did you know? So, oh, okay. We just want you to pick a question. And so, I'm just going to reach into this. I'm going to read a piece yeah. of paper. Okay. I am opening it. Do I read it? Yes. yes. Okay. In your best announcer voice. Mm-hmm. If you were stuck on a deserted island, which desperate housewives character would you want to be stuck with and why? Wow. That's an interesting question. Okay. D- okay. So, it'd be conversation and practical skills. Well, you know, at this point, I think, I think <laughs> what I and gameplay you wanted to talk to you and cook for you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, probably Felicity Huffman's character, Lynette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's hard for me to separate the actress from the character because after eight years, you know, I lived with all of them. You know, you'd you'd have Eva Longoria there if you just wanted to laugh the whole time because yeah. Eva just makes you laugh. She's just a, a, a delight. But I also know if it was even like, okay, we have to build a raft, Eve would be like, okay, see what you can do. I'll be over here doing my nails. <laughs> um, so as well she should because she's just so deliciously wonderful. Um, but, you know, Felicity is like really smart about like everything. So um, I would probably have Felicity like there to just both be wonderful to talk to and then she would you know we would build the raft together so there uh, you go i love it is there one more yeah one more oh, one more can't okay get, we can't get enough of cherry <laughs> uh okay here it is what golden girl are you Ooh. <laughs> oh geez um i think when i was younger i was blanche i was just a big old slut and uh, now 30 years later i'd become b arthur <laughs> You haven't know, we all you know <laughs> haven't we all yeah i because because you know the thing that i loved about and i, I say b arthur i'm conflating the characters because door because the truth is b was very different from dorothy dorothy was very opinionated i think the thing a lot of fans probably wouldn't know about b is she was very vulnerable mm-hmm. you know you i one time had a story with her telling her about some you know behind the scenes drama that was going on while we were shooting the show that she had no idea about and as she heard the story, this was a couple of years after the show had ended, um, B's eyes welled up with tears. She went, I didn't know that was going on. And she was just so moved emotionally by not understanding some of the strife, some of the people were going on behind the scenes. And, and that to me kind of sums up that amazing woman who people think of as being so formidable, like the character she played, but she had a, a big, big heart. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I think about myself in those terms, which is I've reached an age, I'm, I'm 57, I'm about to turn 58, and I, I really know who I am now. I, I didn't know what was going on when I started out. And, you you know, you're trying, aspiring to be something, somebody. And as the years go on, you kind of settle into to who you are. And now I'm, I'm, I feel secure in it, um, even in my flaws, you know. And the stronger I become, and in a way, the more vulnerable I become. Yeah. Because I, I think about the people, you know, I, I won a lottery ticket with Desper Housewives. And so now that, you know, I've, I've made money and I've established myself and I can go into any network I want and pitch something because I, I have the resume to do it. As I become much more secure financially and emotionally, career-wise, 
I find my heart expanding for the people who who don't have lucky breaks and who it doesn't always work out for. And this this would lead me to a very serious conversation about the loss of Sylvia Horta, who yeah. was the creator of Ugly Betty, because when he um, tragically decided to take his own life, you know, they, they were writing articles about him. And some of the problems he went through, I very much identified with. I'm I had enough fortitude and I, and I had people around me who I was able to to learn to assume the role of general and say, hey, troops, we're going over the hill, follow me. But it, it was quite the journey to figure that out. And I heard that, you know, Silvio's time of doing Ugly Betty, and I think they ran it was four or five seasons. I, I, can't, I can't remember right now, but it, it impacted him greatly. And, and as well it should. It's a really fucking hard job to do a show that's both funny and dramatic with continuing storylines for many, many seasons. Um, you know, if someone does a very earnest drama, well, that's a piece of cake. You know, try putting comedy in it because it's like doing two sitcoms right. a week. Right. And, you know, and then he, the, the big hit goes off the air and, you know, and he had problems getting another show going. And I went through that, too, for a variety of reasons. I understood that frustration. And so I think when you're younger, you know, someone goes through problems, people can be a little bit more cavalier. But boy, when you've lived a long life in this industry and know how your fate can turn on the slimmest of decisions by some network executive or some studio guy who doesn't get what you need and why it's important, and suddenly you, you can feel your whole life collapsing around you, and then you put on a, an illness, an addiction on mm -hmm. top of that, you know, I I got very emotional about that. And I don't think when I was 22, I would have. But now I understand. And I look at so many of the, the lives of people around us. And this, of course, brings us back full circle to issues about immigration. Right. I understand where people in a neighborhood, you know, like especially at, at the border, you know, do they feel threatened by uh, drug violence coming across the border? Do they be, feel threatened by this or that? But if you stop looking at people as a, a huge statistic and if you actually take a step back and go, look at this one human being, they may have skin color different than you. But if you can get past that, can you start to understand their dreams and their hopes, their love of their family, what they're struggling to do? It's so hard to care about millions of people. So try to get people to think about one mm. individual. And I think that's some, that's gorgeous. Some, that that's might gorgeous. be the way to, to, to broach politics is to stop talking about it in grandiose terms and boil it down to one person at a time. And so, and I certainly that's been my journey in life, mm -hmm. um, which is I find that my heart opens up more for one individual who I can connect with than talking about philosophical terms about entire populations. Wow. Thank you. Bob. Dear God. Thank you. Thank you for, for gracing us today. And Thank I, you for having me, and oh thank you for God. making so me fun. laugh. It's and Tara, it's been years. It's been way it too has, long. It has. Well, I, she's available for hire. I, you know, I, I never understood why Mark didn't spin my character off of Desperate Housewives, <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. All right. I, well, I, you know what? I got I got to hire at least one of you, and, and given Jonathan's shocking behavior today, it's got to be you, <laughs> Tara. Thank 
you for knowing that. Fuck um, you, Mark. <laughs> um, if everybody does not watch Why Women Kill on CBS All Access, Johnny, Change that. Johnny and I will personally come after you. So please watch this show. It's brilliant. It is fun, it, funny, sexy. Pushing and, the envelope in the best ways. Yeah, and I, I really feel, I'm so proud of the show because it's, it's, you know, I've grown up and get, been given time and money to do the show I always wanted to do. And I'm just, I'm really intensely uh, proud of it and eager to share it with everyone. Well, this industry is blessed to have people like you in it. So Thank you. That's very sweet. Um, all right. We're going to get out, Mark. All right. <laughs> it's over. Boy, when it's over, it's over around <laughs> you here. have no idea. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, that was fun. That was that was more than fun. I mean, clearly you got a fucking job out of it. Wow. He picked you over me. He did not. Yes. Oh, uh, well, he yes, totally. he did. <laughs> uh, he, and I love him even though he called me Tara. Well, it, what's interesting is I've known, I know Tara. Uh, what's interesting is I've known him a long time, but, I, th- you know, when you sit here with people, with, even with friends, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you do a one-on-one conversation, you learn so many things about them. And I, it was just a pleasure to learn so much about his life and about his his political views and it's really really great and you know what i love and we, we do this now every week we get to hear these people and learn about them and i could have sat and listened to mark all oh. afternoon uh, i mean i i could have had you know breakfast lunch and dinner sitting here talking to him okay colin farrell well do you, was that does anybody remember that call <laughs> no. back to call oh, okay I'm not going to describe it because it's dirty. Okay. No, I just feel like he's so funny and so smart. Yeah. And and everything he had to say was so succinct, you know. Um, Really a pleasure. Really a pleasure. And speaking of pleasure, if you're enjoying our show, what you should do is you should – why am I slurring? I'm not drunk. (laughs) Uh, You should rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, because it's really helpful to us to know that you're out there. Uh, uh-huh. listening and uh, keeping us uh, on the air as it were so please do that you really want this to be a radio show <laughs> I mean it's kind of the air we're in people's phones anyway stop being mean to me oh Christ alright <laughs> uh, but thank you for listening and Johnny thank you for being the best co-host ever. Um, that's good makeup good makeup um, alright we will uh, talk to you next week yeah we will bye bye bye